If you have a Bible or your Romans journal, please turn to Romans. Are you ready for it? Chapter 3. We are turning a corner, turning a page maybe. Um, Romans chapter 3. And um, as you're flipping there, swiping there, you can take a quick look at the screen. I know it's hard to see the first outline point there, but that's on purpose. Um, That's all stuff we've done. We started in the fall, this study through this letter, this book, Romans The Apostle Paul was in the city of Corinth. He hadn't been to Rome. He longed to go to Rome. He had heard about the faith of the Roman Christians. It was a church made up of Jew and Gentile, Um, probably predominantly Gentile at this point, um, just because of certain things that had happened. Um, The Romans in control of the area had kicked all Jews out of Rome, uh, but then they were allowed to go back. And so this, this church that had been started as Jews had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and heard the gospel and were saved and, and put into the church. They, they took this, this news about Jesus back to Rome and, and the church was born there and, and Gentiles would have been brought in. But again, as time goes on, Jews get expelled. Now this church is predominantly Gentile and then the Jews are allowed back. And, and so, although it doesn't necessarily, you know, especially since Romans is 16 chapters, um, the bulk of it is not related to Jew-Gentile issues. Those, those issues are there. Um, those racial, ethnic issues are very much there. And so Paul has, has done an introduction, a greeting, a thanksgiving, and then the theme of the letter, we'll see that at the end today. But then beginning at um, Romans 1.18, and this is the, what you see on the screen, again, outlining this letter Roman, or, uh, you know, number two, point number two, he is arguing, not hopefully argumentatively, although maybe his hearers took it that way, but he's making an argument, a logical case, that the need for righteousness is universal because everyone is unrighteous. And, And those words are so important to Romans. Righteousness, unrighteousness, related to righteousness is the word justification, and then these are the English translations of the Greek words. And we will see these words almost in every message as we move through this letter. There's a universal need for God's righteousness to be imputed to us. That is, for us to receive it. That is, it's not something we can earn or do or, or attain. And so as he dives in at chapter 1, verse 18, to this universal need, he very quickly talked to the Gentiles in the church about their need for righteousness, uh, how they are unrighteous um, and deserving of God's wrath. They're idol makers, and there's idols at work in their heart, and their idolatry leads to sexual sin, and God's wrath is going to be poured out on on the world, on the Gentiles, for their sin, Um, and many Jews listening in to Paul's letter would have been nodding their head because, oh boy, they sure could see how those people need God's righteousness. But then at chapter 2, verse 1, and this is where we've been for several messages now, um, he's turned his attention to address the, the Jews um, and said, listen, you who, who basically are wagging your finger uh, at the Gentiles, you too are unrighteous. You too are in need of God's righteousness to be imputed. And again, we'll see at the end, kind of, you got to hang on. The way that happens, 
The way that righteousness transaction occurs is by what Jesus has done and, and, and one's trust in and belief in that. And so Paul has said that. That's his theme, Romans 1, 16, 17. But then he gets distracted, or not really. He's making a point about this universal need of uh, God to make righteous, unrighteous people, Gentile and Jew, and, and, and this is where he, he has been. And we come to the conclusion of that section today in Romans 3, 1 to 8. Um, when we pick up at verse 9, uh, he will once again kind of circle back to the universal need, how there is no one righteous, no, not one, and how all have sinned, all, a Gentile Jew, everyone has fallen short of God's glory. And then he will circle back to the, the theme of being made righteous, being justified by grace. And so he's, he said it, he's, he'll, he'll get back there. And along the way, we have to hear Paul's, Paul's words. We, we were in the end of two last week. And, and there I talked about how um, essentially Paul was calling out the Jews for trusting in, um, especially trusting in how they were the recipients of the law. They had the Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew scriptures. And, and while that's a good thing, they, they thought that just the fact that they had the word meant that maybe they weren't going to get God's wrath poured out on them. Or, and related to it, they, they were the people of the circumcision. That was the sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people and because they have circumcision. Um, but God calls them out for relying on those, those things. And now here in chapter 3, he's going to finish out this indictment against the, the Jewish nation. And one more time, um, again, he is not anti-Semitic. He, uh, he, he was Jewish. Of course, Jesus was Jewish. Um, Paul's not an anti-Semite. He's, he's anti-Judaism, as in a way to be saved. He, as I said last week, he would have been anti-Islam. He would have been anti-naturalism. Um, anti-anything other than the revelation from God in his word uh, of how one is made right before God. Join me as I read chapter 3, 1 through 8, and then we'll spend a few minutes working through it. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. 
God is faithful and trustworthy. That's what, among a few other things, we'll see in these eight verses today. And that's the title. You see it there on the screen. So Paul, in, in his indictment against his own people, his own ethnic people, he has used a rhetorical device called a diatribe. So again, he, this would have been common, um, and so his listeners, readers, they would have understood what he was doing, where he has this, this argument with an imaginary figure. And he, again, it's kind of this imaginary Jewish person. And in this diatribe rhetorical style, there's a lot of rhetorical questions that occur. And um, once again, Paul has been doing that. We saw that quite a few times in chapter 2, and he's returned to it here in, in this chapter. And again, following last week, uh, following his um, statements about how, look, just because you have the word, the law, just because you have circumcision, those things in and of themselves won't justify you, won't make you righteous, he, he asked the question right at the beginning there, so, right, what advantage then has the Jew, or what value has circumcision? And logically, uh, if you'd been listening to Paul, you might have thought, well, nothing, I guess. And it is true in an absolute sense that there is no advantage before God, um, but notice Paul's answer, and this would have, again, caught them off guard, because if, if we were reading all of it, we would have been like, oh, okay, I guess there's no advantage. But right at verse 2, he quickly says, there is much advantage. And then he, he does this. He says, to begin with, or in, in um, some translations, it actually says first. So he's, it sounds like, going to start to build an argument. Um, and so he lists one thing, and then he gets distracted and sidetracked. I appreciate the Apostle Paul. Um, sometimes when I'm talking to my kids, they can testify to this. I may say something like, hey, a couple things first, and then I'll just start to talk, and I'll just like go on, and 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 then I can't even remember what the second thing was I was going to say, and they're glad at that point that I have <laughs> forgotten as well. Uh, not that I nag them ever, 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 but sometimes. Um, but here's what's interesting to note. Um, there are several advantages, and Paul, in fact, in chapter 9 he will get to more of the advantages. Um, so here, chapter 3, verse 2, answering the question, what advantage is there to being a Jew or what's the value of circumcision? Much, he says, to begin with, first off, the Jews were entrusted, I love the language, entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the book, the word of God. And then he's again going to meander and, and let that kind of take him down some roads. When he gets to what we call chapter 9, verse 4, when, and we'll get there one day, um, he says this, Romans 9, 4, and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So there's many advantages to being Jewish. And, and so first he starts here, and then again, he'll pick that up once again a little bit later. His first thing he says, the, the advantage the Jews have, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. This phrase is used several different times uh, in the scriptures, Jan, you mentioned in our God moments, Psalm 119, that phrase is used quite a bit uh, in Psalm 119, the oracles of God. God's words 
to his people. God entrusted God's people, the Jews, with, again, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And sometimes it's a specific word, but more often it's just the revelation of God generally. 24 times, in fact, in Psalm 119, that phrase of God's word is used. In the New Testament, um, uh, this this phrase uh, refers to the law of Moses, to the teachings, the Christian teachings about God, um, again, to God's oracles generally. The Jews were given, as one author puts it here in this context, Paul seems to be saying they were given the Old Testament, as we call it, as a whole. And with special references, perhaps, to the promises. The Jews were entrusted with, with the promises. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I said before you today, God said. Or Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So there you have different, a different word than oracles, but the same idea, not again connected grammatically or linguistically to oracles, but this, this recognition that there's no other people on the, f- place, uh, pl- uh, on the planet, on the face of the earth that had been given the book. And, and the Jews loved that. They were people of the book. And that's a good thing. And that's an advantage. And as I mentioned, he breaks off, though, from keeping, you know, number two and number three of the advantage list um, by now teasing out, one might say, these implications of being a people of the book, of, of being entrusted with the very words of God, the, the implications. And again, his way of doing that is these questions and answers. And so here now in verses three, through eight, we're going to find three sets of questions, verses three and four, five and six, seven and eight. Three sets of questions that, again, continue his um, imaginary diatribe argument with, with someone with these back and forth uh, question-answer rhetorical questions. So verse three. So what if, he says, some were unfaithful. And, and it may be, in fact, that as he says that, writes it, he's asking a question that they may have asked or that they may ask. Uh, one, one commentator I read this week, he, he talked about how in teaching for over 25 years in, in, in seminary and in teaching a class, the same class, you know, semester after semester, he said, I can, I can anticipate what people are going to ask uh, throughout my class. I just know what the questions are going to be. Um, and so... Paul here seems to be doing that. Having been a Christian now for over 20 years, that's kind of fun to kind of keep in mind. From when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it's been about 20 years. And so he knows as he's traveled and started churches and had face-to-face conversations with people, Jews, and, and talked about the gospel and Jesus, all of it, what they might push back on. And so again, he's having this back and forth. And so what if some state that, What if, verse 3, some were unfaithful, that is, like to the oracles? Does does their faithlessness, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? A rhetorical question, and he answers it at verse 4, by no 
means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. There's something in me that I so appreciate Paul right there. And it's not because, like, I I think I'm like, I'm not trying to be self-righteous. Like, I just, in my own life, I just, man, how dare I ever entertain that that my sinning, my being unfaithful means that God's not faithful. That that I, you know, blame him for, for how I live. By no means. Let's not go there. Now, having said that, God's not afraid of our honesty. And we can see plenty of examples in the Bible, especially the Psalms, where, where we can cry out to God and lament and, and, and ask questions of God in prayer. And that, that's okay to, to direct those kinds of things to God. But, oh, we should be very careful of blaming God for things. And, and that's Paul's point. By no means. Let, let God be true, even if everyone were a liar. And then... He says, as it is written. So to make his point, uh, to make his point here, he, he quotes from David in Psalm 51. David, um, Psalm 51, the context many of you will know is his song, his prayer of confession and repentance after his adulterous sin with Bathsheba and, and the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Um, and so uh, he, he quotes that. And it's a little weird. Uh, again, he's quoting the Greek translation. So like if we go to Psalm 51, it, it's going to look a little different because we're reading a Hebrew tra- the translation of Hebrew. His quote is from the Greek translation. And so the wording is it's just a little different. But this is what it says. As it is written in Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But in Psalm 51 there, in the Hebrew, um, and I I like how uh, the CSV, or CSB translates this, I, I think it's more accurate, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Because that's what David, that's what David says, if you listen Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse 4, David writes, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of course, he had sinned against Bathsheba, but he recognizes ultimately, even when we sin horizontally, that's a sin against God. So that, God, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so again, then Romans 3, 4. Let me read it again. Let God be true, even though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. That you would be blameless in your judgment. So again, the first set of questions all have to do with this idea of the faithfulness of God and putting it into question. Does the faithlessness of some Jews, does that nullify the faithfulness of God? No, no, no. 
God is true. God is true. Even though every human were, in fact, a liar. That's Paul's point. And he's going to come back to the truth of God and, and our lies here in a moment. That's the first set of questions, verses four, uh, three and four. The second set of questions, verses five and six. But if our unrighteousness, so again, we, we, we are faithless and we sin. So now back and forth arguments again. If, if our unrighteousness, well, then if that somehow serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous then to inflict wrath on us? And then I love, again, parenthetical. I, I speak in a human way. <laughs> and that's a phrase Paul uses a few different times. And then, again, verse 6, the, the answer to the rhetorical question, by no means. God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Our unrighteousness, and even though it magnifies his holiness and his righteousness, that doesn't make him unrighteous. By no means. And then his, part of his answer, and even though he doesn't say, as it is written, he, he's got some Bible that he is, is uh, undergirding his, his answer with here in verse 6. He says, by no means, for then, how could God judge the world? And commentators universally seem to agree. He probably has Genesis chapter 18, verse 25 in mind. Back in, in Genesis 18, God is about to judge Sodom, and there's this interaction with Abraham and this back and forth that Abraham has with God. And in the midst of it, Abraham says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it... Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So there's that phrase, the judge of all the earth. And, and so in Romans 3.6, how could God judge the world? If he's the, the judge of all the earth, but he's unrighteous, how, how can he be the judge of all the earth? And again, in 18.25 of Genesis, Abraham's statement about God is, you're the judge of all the earth, and, and shall not you, as the judge of all the earth, do what is just? And again, we won't look at it today, but all throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the justness of God is on display. God is just in all he does. We may have questions about what he does. And there's mystery um, and there's questions we will ask and ask and ask until we see him. But the scripture affirms he is just. So again, the question essentially in the second set is, is God unrighteous or is he unfair to, again, put us under wrath, to inflict wrath? And, and this idea of wrath, we saw it in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. We will see it in Romans 3, 9 through 20. Because all are unrighteous, all have sinned, all have fallen short. There's no one who does righteousness. God is righteous to, to judge and to inflict his wrath. And again, yeah, it's not a very popular um, topic. We, we did not put out on our social media channels. We do have a few of those. Um, come today to hear about the wrath of God being inflicted on the world. That's not the, the whole story, of course. And that we need a sermon to, 
to talk about wrath, but to hear the grace. And, and I hope we're hearing all of it, but, but here in our text, God is just. And he's righteous and he's fair. And he does what he does out of who he is, even as he is the judge of all the earth. But these questions will come. And they're questions that the Jews had and Paul anticipated them. It's, they're questions we have even in our day, questions of theodicy. How can a good God allow evil? And, and, and if he's really good and powerful, why doesn't he stop it? And if, if he doesn't stop it, he must not be all good. And, and here, again, these questions have been asked. And there's a, a lot to be said, not, not quick, trite answers, especially you know, over a coffee table with someone who's hurting. We need to listen and, and empathize and sympathize and, um, and, 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 and answer. And there's good answers to be had. And we could talk about that more. If you have some of those questions, I'd love to talk with you more. And then finally, in verses 7 and 8, the third set of questions so now again, he returns to this whole thing about a lie and, and truth, right? Even if everyone were a liar, God would be true. He, that's what he said earlier. So now here in verse seven, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? Well, so that good may come. And, and he's gonna return to this idea. This is something he'll get to in Romans 6. Well, if, if God's glory is on display through his forgiveness and grace when we sin, well, why don't we just sin and get more grace and forgiveness and glory? And again, Paul in chapter 6 will say, no, no, no. That's a dangerous place to be and a dangerous way to live. And so he kind of sets the table right here for what he'll come back to in Romans 6. He says, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And, well, why not just do evil so that good may come? And then here it is. As some, he says, some people slanderously charge us, that is, Paul and his companions, the, the Christians, as saying. And, and that's, again, an argument he's going to come back to. The Christian gospel is not licentiousness. It's not no rules. Again, the Christian message is, is turned upside down. We, we are called to obey God, but it is a response to who he is. We don't obey to earn his love. We have his love through Christ. It's changed us, and now we, we obey in response. So even though he's being slanderously charged, he says their condemnation, those who do this, who charge us with that, is deserved. Their, their, their judgment is, is just. Again, some argue that the lies we make, um, they actually enhance God's truthfulness and therefore increase his glory. And then that might lead people to say, well, then why should we be condemned? And again, Paul says, no, no, no. Doug Moo, New Testament scholar and commentator says, as the apostle to the Gentiles, that's one of the phrases Paul uses in Romans eleven thirteen. Paul was thrust into the center of controversy and false rumors about his teaching, and they were circulating evidently in Rome. And his claim that a person is justified by faith alone sounds to some as if he is opening the door to unrestrained behavior. 
And he simply dismisses this unfounded charge here, but he will deal with it more in Romans 6. So Paul is saying, God is faithful. He's trustworthy. Even if we sin and we're liars, it doesn't nullify his faithfulness. And, and then he again goes further into these rhetorical questions to, to bring to a close his statement to the Jews that they too are unrighteous and need God's righteousness. And what we will see in verse 9 um, is this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. And then he's going to go through that and unpack that. I want to draw just a couple of things as we conclude. Again, um, if we were the kind of church that did three-hour sermons, you know we could attack this on to the, the previous section. And, uh, and so we're, we're trying to be the church that does like 35 to 40-minute sermons, trying Trying, trying really hard, week in and week out. But, but a few things to, to say in conclusion. Paul here speaks of God's faithfulness. And, um, and, and he asserts, again, let, let God be true. Even if we are unfaithful, he, he, is, he is true. And he is, he is faithful. And we've sung this morning about trusting in God, our Savior, the one who will never fail. I was thinking about that, that promise. And that's a promise we need. That's a promise we need. Because we, we have a meal and someone we love starts to have pain and we think, oh no. And so we, we need promises that we can hang on to that speak of God's faithfulness. We, we have things in our work that collapse in our life and, and we need promises to hang on to. We have relational conflict and we need promises to hang on to. And listen, we are all, not just those young, younger generations, you know, with their TikTok and their devices all the time. We all, younger, middle, older, all of us, we can all get sucked into so many other things telling us truth, supposedly. And, and we can spend so much time being bombarded with this YouTube and this teaching and this point and that. And we need, we need to hear from God that he is trustworthy and faithful. And so I was thinking about the promise that God will never leave us. Have you heard that one? Where do we get that? Where, where does that, that come from? So we, we just had Christmas time, right? Not too long ago. And um, we mentioned this. Uh, we, we spent most of our time as a church in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. But we did touch briefly um, on, on Matthew's uh, account of Joseph. And Joseph being told... Uh, what was about to happen to his betrothed and all of that. And, and so Matthew records this. After Joseph has this encounter with an angel in, in the dream, um, it says, uh, Matthew one twenty two. all this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Uh, This is still the angel revealing all this to Joseph in the dream. And then the quote the angel gives Joseph from Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew helps us. Emmanuel means what? Remember? God with us. He's still God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. So that's Matthew 1. At the end of Matthew, when Jesus has died and then risen and he spends um, 40 or so days with um, over 500 of his followers and all these different appearances, and then just before he ascends to heaven where he is now, he, he says these words. He comes to the apostles and, and, and likely some other disciples and he says, all authority, this is Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Help people begin and grow in following me. That's a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Help people begin and grow in following me. Make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups, Baptize them in the name, here's our triune God, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us. He promised that I'm with you. The way he's with us is through the Spirit that he sent, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, at this point in the letter of the Hebrews, the author there is, is giving some practical instruction about love and it, how it should continue and hospitality, how marriage is to be held in honor. Verse 5, Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Oh my, that's uh, meddling. Keep your life free, not from money, but from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Okay, nice instruction, writer to the Hebrews. Um, Good moral words, but notice now he's going to ground it in something. Why are we to not love money? Why are we to be content with what we have? For he has said, and here we have the writer quoting Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, along with the psalmist, Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God is faithful, church. Even when we are faithless, he's faithful. And one way he's faithful is that if we are in Christ, if we have responded to the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the news, right? Gospel means good news, And that gospel, this news about what he's done, especially, specifically in Jesus, is the power of God to save everyone who trusts, believes, responds to it. The Jew first, there's priority. Jesus was Jewish. They they receive the oracles. They have a special part in God's history. The Jew first, also the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, there's that word again, is revealed from 
faith for faith, for in the gospel, um, the righteous, or in, in it, that is the gospel, the righteous shall live by faith. So God does this work, and those who have benefited and received this work can now say, God, you promise to be with me, and it's grounded in your word. It's grounded in Joshua 1.5, and that was obviously a long way back before Jesus, but notice how it progresses. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us. He then said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Through the Spirit, he sends. We read that in Galatians 4 during our catechism. And then the writer of the Hebrews says, don't love money. Be content with what you have. For it's written, it's written, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can trust God. That's a promise you can trust, and you need that. I need that. And then you can trust Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? They can do a lot, but not ultimate if we're in Christ. Would you stand? We are going to dismiss with prayer and the benediction and then get to coffee cake. But I want to ask God to impress this promise on you. And there's other promises. And maybe there's other promises you need to, but this is one we all need. God is with us because of Christ, because of who he is and what he's done. So Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and Romans and his argument. And thank you that he brings up this point that even if we are all liars, which we all lie, and we're all unrighteous, which we all are until you make us righteous, and even then we fall short, and we're faithless at times. You remain faithful. Oh, may we never accuse you of being anything but what you are and who you are. But in that, God, thank you that you have said that you are with us till the end of the age, and you will never leave us. So when we go through a trial which we all do, may we trust you and find you faithful because it's who you are and what you've said in your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who was righteous and who lived the righteous life we can't live and who took your wrath, God, on the cross so that we don't have to one day. And so those of us that know that and have experienced the gospel and your saving grace, we thank you. And I ask if there's anyone this morning wrestling with that, confused by that, being drawn to it. God, give them the courage to seek you, maybe to ask uh, a question of me or someone else and pursue you. For your fame, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.